You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview authors of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I'm your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 187. I'm honored to welcome back to the podcast the uh, legendary Dean Koontz, whose latest novel, The Big Dark Sky, is being published on Tuesday, July 19th. So by the time you're listening to this podcast, the book will be available. The Big Dark Sky is another twist-filled novel by Dean Koontz, which uh, has a group of strangers bounding together and becoming humankind's only hope of survival. The interview is coming right up, but first I want to let you know about my own thriller, Gringo Gulch, which is available right now for pre-order. The book release date will be on July 26th, but like I said, you can order it now uh, via pre-order, and then uh, Amazon will deliver that to you on the 26th. No must, no fuss. And I'm very excited about this book. It's a story that's been bouncing around in my head for more than 10 years. So it's exciting to finally uh, see it coming out in uh, novel form. So you can all uh, go and check it out. And it takes place in my home country of Costa Rica, where a local homicide investigator teams up with a rookie FBI profiler to track down a serial killer targeting Americans in Costa Rica. So hope you check it out. It's called Gringo Gulch, and you can go to thrillingreads.com forward slash 26 and learn more about it from there. So I hope you uh, give it a shot. All right. So uh, here is my interview with uh, Dean Koontz. Hey, everybody. Alan Peterson here with Meet the Thriller Author, and I'm so excited to have uh, Dean Koontz returning to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dean, for uh, coming back. Good to be there. Let's see if I make any sense at all. Uh, all these good stuff uh, when you're on the podcast, so uh, I really do appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed The Big Dark Sky. That's your new book that's coming out uh, next week, July 19th. Another uh, uh, genre bender. I just love how you do that. And uh, so can you tell us a little bit about it and how, how that came about and how you started writing uh, The dark, uh, the Big Dark Sky? Well, I've since as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with synchronicity. There's you know, gigantic coincidences that uh, are clearly not coincidental, that are so complex and interesting. And about 40 years ago, I said, I got to write a novel about synchronicity, but I didn't know how to do it. And every time I stopped and thought about it, brooded over it, I couldn't find a way to pull it off uh, or to raise the issue that the world, what appears to be coincidence and synchronicity, uh, is actually evidence that the world is, is structured just like quantum mechanics says it is, that on the lowest of all levels, reality is spider silk. It's very fragile and nothing behaves by any rules, which is a strange thing to, uh, to accept. But all of our technology is based on quantum mechanics and it does work. It's the one form, you know, the one theory of everything that's never been disproven. Uh, so finally, after 40 years, I kind of came up with a way to talk about synchronicity and show it in a subtle form in the lives of all the characters who, by one coincidence here, there, and elsewhere, all come together at a very crucial time. And then there had been a long time that I thought about uh, uh, writing a story about somebody who had a secret friend in childhood and was a very strange secret friend, and uh, maybe not so secret after all, maybe real, and had forgotten about it until one day they begin to get messages from this person 25 years later saying, please come back to Montana. 
I'm in a dark place. I need your help. And I sort of, uh, with those two uh, themes, got got my plot working and was able to take off with it. But uh, the book also, with in addition to the synchronicities that bring all these people together, at one point, uh, Ganesh Patel, who is one of the characters, begins to talk about some real-world synchronicities. So to help people understand that, my favorite, well, one of my favorites, I have a lot of, I only use four real-world synchronicities in the book, but one of them is about Beatrice, Nebraska, Westside Baptist Church in 1950. I have 15 members in the choir, and 7.30 every Sunday night, they had practice. That's the dog in the background, snarling and jumping and having a good time. Uh, Mine are snoring down here. <laughs> she's making so much noise, I don't know if it comes across. Elsa, you want to tell the story? Yes, sounds like she does. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this choir of 15 people met every Sunday at 7.30. And no one had ever been late because it was a very strict choir master. And this one night, uh, all 15 of them were late, each one for a different reason. One of them, a car broke down. One of them, there was a sudden illness of a child. And as a result, nobody showed up on time. One person was almost on time. And as she arrived across the street from the church, it blew up in a gas explosion. And if all those people had been there, all those people would have died that night. When you start looking at that sort of synchronicity, that coincidence, a word coined by C.J. Jung, by the way, um, C.J. Jung, uh, it's, uh, it begins to say, yeah, okay, the world is really mysterious and that uh, things work on a level beyond our comprehension. And so I wanted to touch upon that in this book and also throw a lot of twists and turns at you with kind of sizable cast. So uh, I had fun. I hope the reader Fun. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic, uh, it was a fantastic read. I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, it's so fascinating that you you've been having this idea for so long. Once it all clicks in, because I know you're famous, you don't use outlines or anything like that. Once it clicks in for you and you start to write it, do you? How long does it take you before you're like, okay, this is gelling well? I think I'm going to be able to take this all the way through. I was a little concerned about this one as I was writing it because there were so many balls in the air. Uh, there are there are essentially two villains. Uh, and uh, they're equally nuts. Uh, I like the book list, gave us a very nice review and said that the one villain is totally wackadoo, but absolutely compelling. <laughs> and I thought, yep, it, he is totally wackadoo, but I hope compelling. Uh, but he was so dark and elements of it kept coming in and getting darker and darker. And I thought, okay, uh, is there gonna be enough light in this to guide us through in a good kind of way? And then there's uh, there's a computer hacker character whom I like and his girlfriend and Ganesh Patel who comes into it and all have a certain humor about what's going on with them. And then, of course, the bad guy actually is unconsciously amusing. He doesn't know he is, but you know, that's that's a way I kind of deal with many villains. Uh, so there were the moments when I thought, well, is this one going to work or not? But I think it was at about in the midpoint. I thought, OK, I think. I don't have to worry about that. Whether it turns out to be wonderful or not, I won't know until it's done, but at least I know I'm going to be able to finish it. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So you go pretty deep in. So like, what, 50,000 words or so? You're still kind of not sure? Or? Yeah. Those are the ones you get really nervous about. I tend to I tend to be sure somewhere around 
15, 10, 15,000 words that this thing is gelling and coming together. But I think it had to do with the number of characters. I have this thing about uh, even walk-on characters. I like to paint them pretty detailed. Uh, for instance, you meet a guy named Harley Spundaller uh, fairly early in this book, pretty much a ne'er-do-well, and something pretty astonishing happens to him. Uh, and he never reappears in the story again, but he gets like 10 pages. And uh, I had to give him the 10 pages and I had to get to know him. And I'm kind of like that. I think if when you have just walk-ons in a novel, whose purpose is simply to get you from X or from K to L, yeah, K to L, and that's all they're there for. It becomes transparent to the reader that all of this is kind of manipulation. But if the characters come through and they're rounded and complete in their own little stories, it all feels more real to me. And as a consequence, when it's a novel with the cast like this, you begin to wonder, can you get this all done in some reasonable length? Fortunately, it was done and came out. And so far, I think it's being well-received. So. And then with your characters, too, it's so amazing because, um, like I said, you're famous for not using outlines, but the way you develop your characters is kind of organic. Uh, as a, a process for you as well, isn't it? Because I know like some of the courses say, you know, oh, you have to do these deep dives and this big profile on the character before you start to write, but you don't do that either, don't, don't you? No, I don't. Uh, it's, I, I find the characters come alive faster and better if I let them have flexibility about who they are. Um, I did things like that very early in my career. And, uh, and I found out that I didn't really follow it. If I would have followed it, what you're really doing is, is giving characters a series of traits. If you don't know the character yet, you can sit and brood about it and say things like, well, here's the appearance of the character. Um, and here's, uh, uh, here's what their psychology is and here's why their psychology has gotten here. But that's, that's kind of artificial and. Then when you get into the story, if you compel them to stay within that narrow vein of how, what you conceive, you're, uh, you're sort of giving up the opportunity to let them blossom into something more and more interesting. So I've just thought, okay, let's just go with it. Uh, I know my character had this tragedy, the lead character, uh, Jojo, Joanna, and she had this double tragedy in her childhood. And it's 25 years later, and it still on some level affects her. But it's 25 years, and I'm not one of those writers who says, okay, because this happened to somebody at eight years old, now when you're 35, it's still the dominant influence in life. I don't really think life works that way. I had a pretty traumatic childhood. And while I realized things about myself that endure, that kind of came out of that childhood, I've, I've not been totally shaped by it. So I just like to give them, a, we'll see who they are, let them show me, and then see where they go and how they respond to certain plot developments that, that, that come along. And then they shape themselves. And we talked a little bit about the, about the villains for writers. That's a, an important part of a, of a book, isn't it? Is the villain not to make it like a cartoon or something like that? Yeah. It's, uh, you don't want to, a, a Mike Myers, the, uh, Dr. Eva with a white cat on his lap. Uh, very funny, but you don't want to try to get away with that novel. Uh, my villain in this, Asher Optime, 
is one of the bones. I won't say who the other is, because the other remains cloaked through most of the novel. You know he's out there, but you don't know who he is or exactly what he is. And uh, Asher, however, is right there in your face. Uh, he has a lot of scenes on his own. And he is a complete misanthropic guy. Uh, he hates all humanity and thinks the planet would be much better if everyone just died. And that's unlikely to happen. So it's Asher's attempt to make sure of happens. He has this glorious vision of being the last living human being down the road and having been responsible one way or another for having taken everyone out. And uh, he's, he's pretty wackadoodle, actually. Yet there are people in the, the real world who actually believe this and actually would like to see it happen. Uh, so I wanted to get into the psychology of that character. Came up with a few little things you learn about them. They go, whoa. Uh, one of them, I won't give it away, fairly early on. That makes him a very committed guy to his philosophy. And when he reveals it to this woman he's holding captive, uh, it's, it's kind of a chilling moment. You think somebody who's capable of that could be capable of doing anything, including eradicating humanity. So, yeah, you need a villain that you can believe in, even as strange as he may be. And uh, I found sometimes the stranger they are, the more believable they are, as long as you're not using anything you've seen in, in a movie or, or that easy way of painting a villain. Mine tend to be narcissistic nutcases, sociopaths, narcissists, instead of guys who just want to rob the bank or uh, or want to steal uh, millions from some gurus or other, or have killed their neighbor and want to get away with it. Mine tend to be more uh, aggressive in their villainy. And I think that's because my dad was ultimately diagnosed as a sociopath. So I grew up with that and I saw it firsthand. And now studies show that, depending on the studies, between somewhere between 10 and 20% of human population is sociopathic. I sometimes think it's a little higher than that. <laughs> and uh, that means there's plenty of them out there. So uh, we've got a choice of villains if you want to go that way. Yeah, there's pretty big uh, heady subjects in this, uh, in, in the novel. Um, is that something when you're writing, you're like trying to, because there's like big subjects and big ideas, but you're, you still need to make it entertaining and, and, and fast moving. And you do that. Um, how does that just come naturally for you, or is that from experience? Kind of curious how that works for you. It's partly experience, I think, but also one of them is I would say it's something that's absolutely true in film writing too, but not often thought about so much um, when people are writing novels. And one of the key things about keeping moving and keeping it exciting is knowing how to cut. How to cut not the amount of prose, but how to cut from scene to scene and when to do it. I've had reviews that say I throw a lot of balls in the air. Amazing thing is I continue to juggle them without dropping any. Well, that's one way to put it. Uh, but it's it also, if you have several storylines and they're, they're all intertwined, they're all related to this central thing going on, but you're cutting away to them. All of those have their dramatic momentum going on then you can keep the scenes 
deep but shorter than you do otherwise. And you're able to keep cutting in between them. And I don't think a reader gets bored at all that way. Uh, the challenge is making all those characters distinct and their problems distinct enough so that when you go back on them, the reader has no problem remembering who that was. That's sort of one of my key tricks is that knowing when to cut from one thing to another. And you're uh, just a, as a reader, uh, looking at all those books there uh, behind you, what an, uh, you're known for your library collections. Amazing. How many, how many books do you have in your library collection now so far? Oh, I called it when we moved uh, and uh, was sort of the hardest thing I did, except uh, my wife said, you know, you keep every book, whether you liked it or not. And there's a lot of these books you didn't like at all. And that's true. I would keep the book to remind myself why I thought that was a bad book or why you don't do this and that if I ever need an example of it uh, in something I write or whatever. But then she said, but you know, when you die, and somebody looks at those library, they're going to think that was your taste. All these bad books that are mixed in with the good ones. And I thought, mm, she's right. So I had to get rid of them. Uh, one time, I, I know there was at least 50,000 books that we had uh, throughout the house, hardcovers, paperbacks. Uh, I don't know anymore. I've called them down. We're in an interim house. And uh, a lot of books are still in storage, especially the whole paperback collection. I didn't bring that along. So I don't acquire them quite as often as I used to, but I'm still in many ways a shameless collector. I, if, I, if I've got to have it, I've got to have them. And over the years, I bought a lot of very strange nonfiction books. And uh, I look at it and think, why do I want a book on butterflies? Well, why do I want a book on this thing or that thing? Some of them very esoteric subjects. And as years have gone by, almost every one of them I've needed. Uh, so I tend not to get rid of the nonfiction because it surprised me. It, I'm writing and I think, oh, it'd be great if this character was an aficionado of this or a specialist in this. And then I go, bing, I have several books on that subject and I can go get them. I'm still an old-fashioned researcher. My assistant will go online and get things I need, but I never go online. I do most of my research from books or from people I can call with special knowledge of uh, various subjects. And do you like take notes then for your research? Do you like, oh, this is interesting. You take notes, and then so you have it when you start writing it, or I, I usually mark up the books. I uh, I highlight things in the articles that we get offline. Are online and, uh, and then they're, I'm in a tracking office. Not, this is my assistant's office right now, but my office is attractive until I'm working on a novel. And then it's stacked full of things all over the room. Uh, and it looks like I wouldn't be able to find anything, but I tend to be able to find it no matter how many things are piled on top of it. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, I, I read it earlier this year, you signed an, uh, a five book deal with Thomas and Mercer. So that's great for us fans uh, that we have more books coming out. You've also talked before about the changing um, condition of uh, contemporary publishing. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it's been your experience so far with Thomas and Mercer? I find a lot of, uh, of, the, of the thriller books I've been reading in the last few years that I've enjoyed a lot are usually published by Thomas and Mercer. So they really seem to know what they're doing, even though they're not having been around as long as the uh, traditional as the big five. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, I signed the deal, I think, 
it was probably toward the end of last year, I announced at the beginning of this year. And uh, I delivered two novels of the five, uh, one called The House at the End of the World, which I like quite a lot, and one called After Death, uh, which is, uh, was a lot of fun. Tackles, uh, and I don't want to say what it tackles, but it's a subject a lot of people have written about, uh, mostly in nonfiction. And I thought, I don't think they quite perceive how this would evolve. Uh, and I had a lot of fun after death. And I'm working on a third now. So uh, it's I'm not slowing down. I'm just having too much fun. And I will say that that fun is because of the way things are at Thomas and Mercer. It's, uh, there's, not, there's not that pressure to stop crossing genres, which I felt almost everywhere else I've ever worked. Uh, it would be expressed not as, as an order to stop it, but a subtle, well, how do you get away with putting this into this kind of novel? And it, it always thought, well, I've been getting away with it for almost 50 years. <laughs> Why wouldn't I get away with it one more time? Uh, I don't get that feedback now. Uh, it's also true that when I worked in New York publishing, if somebody was a publisher, they generally were mid-50s or 60 or even older. And a senior editor was 40-something, 50-something. And now I find when I went to Thomas and Mercer, the first thing that struck me is how young everybody was. It was sloped much more toward the 20s, 30s uh, for a lot of the chief people I was dealing with. As a consequence, I think that's part of it. it. Just maybe it all comes out of a different background. It's not coming out of 150 years of publishing a certain way. So everybody isn't rule obsessed or obsessed with common wisdom. And there's a lot of energy and excitement about doing different things. And uh, that's that's very heartening. It's uh, it's uplifting, and uh, it's it's kept me going, kept me out of trouble with the cops and at my desk. Yeah, and and at least you mentioned you were not you're not slowing down. I mean, this is uh, the the big dark sky is going to be the second uh, book you published this year uh, with Thomas and Mercer. So uh, I think that's so refreshing. I'm seeing more and more of that, uh, even from you know uh, the A list type uh, writers like yourself are publishing more than the usually we had to wait a whole year at least you know for a book. It seems like that's changing a lot. Well, you know it it changed uh, when a couple of writers. Uh, some years ago, just stopped living by the one book year rule and did perfectly fine. And publishers didn't like it. The, the common wisdom back when, a couple of few decades ago, was that if you did more than one a year, the audience would get tired of you very quickly. So you had to have them, keep them waiting and anticipating. I always thought, well, maybe that would be true if you're writing the same kind of book all the time. But if you're looking for different kind of stories to tell and they never know quite what you're going to give them, it seems to me you would have no problem keeping the, the audience there. And I think that's proven out. Then there's, I think, another thing is that uh, the book business has been hammered the last number of years, partly out of mistakes that were made there. I may have talked about this when I was on before, the, the conscious effort to destroy the mass market paperback because the price point was too low 
And you, the idea that they could do away with the eight to ten dollar paperback and get people to pay sixteen or seventeen dollars for trade paperbacks, the larger size, I always thought was ridiculous. Uh, there's just a lot of people not willing to pay that much more uh, for it, and that's happened. Uh, the mass market is all but gone. Used to be able to sell two million in the first year. Now I see you had to sell a few hundred thousand be at the top of the list for a week. Now I see people at the top of the list selling 10,000 copies. That's how bad the mass market, it's it's not widely distributed anymore. And they made that happen. Well, the trade paperback never made up for it and neither has eBooks entirely. Uh, So I think a lot of writers saw their income shrinking and thought, I better do two books a year. That's fine. I think anyone, who can write one a year can probably write two at the same level of quality. Many of the writers back when I was starting, and I, even before I started when I was a reader and the writers I, I liked a lot, were not writing one book a year. They were writing Donald Westlake would write a Donald Westlake novel, and he'd also write a Richard Stark novel. And then maybe he'd also write a Tucker Comell. They'd spread it out over pseudonyms. And I did a little of that in my early years, which is actually not a very smart thing to do because you're not building one audience. You're trying to build multiple ones, which is multiple times harder. Yeah. It's amazing because you're talking about the the battle that they, the, the big publishers did with the trade book, uh, the paperback is similar, like the battle that they got on Amazon years ago with the eBooks. It was the same thing. And now you're seeing the new eBooks uh, coming out and they're like $15, $16 for the eBook, which is kind of expensive for digital, I, I think, but <laughs> they haven't learned. Well, no, exactly. It's uh, my previous publisher. The, the idea of publishing an e-book below $14.95, they couldn't tolerate it. They couldn't see that. Amazon has always been smart pricing them like a paperback, $9.99. That was, that's, that was the highest price for a premium mass market, the ones that were slightly fallen. Uh, and sometimes they'll discount it to you know, $6.99 or something like that to promote pre-orders. And they just won't do that in New York. They say margins are too small anyway. Well, it's it's kind of like they thought margins were very small on the mass market. $10 mass market, the publisher would give a, a 45% discount to bookstores. Maybe certain accounts would get a little more, a little less. So they got they took back $550. If the writer was getting a dollar fifty of that, they still were making four dollars a unit. And what it cost to print it in large quantity was about 30 cents per copy. And there's some distribution that some copies are were taken back, they were turnable. But in the end, uh, they were clearing like three dollars a copy, I would guess somewhere around there. And if in my case they were selling two million the first year, that's that's considerable amount of profit to turn your nose up at. And think that, oh, we'll make much more if we just charge a lot more. It doesn't work out that way. You price people out of it. And, uh, and there's a fear, it seems to me, that if they price like Amazon does, that they will sell, they will sell the same number and then they'll make less money. But what I think we see is that when you lower that price, you sell more and you make more. Uh, and it, it seems like a no brainer, but. But it's it's still basically Amazon takes that approach. Now it's fair enough to say that Amazon 
is a company with no, enormous number of revenue streams. So if they do take in less uh, on something they're publishing, that is more something they can handle because of the breadth of all their businesses. So to be fair to their publishers, that's also true. And as I was reading, I'm, I'm excited about this, that uh, you have uh, several uh, projects that are in development for the screen, uh, including uh, Devoted and Elsewhere. Uh, just kind of curious how that's going and what's your take on uh, on seeing Hollywood uh, adapting your work? Has, uh, you always hear horror stories and funny stories. How's it been for you? <laughs> horror stories that are also funny. Uh, it's, <laughs> all the horror <laughs> stories end up being funny in retrospect because the there's so much foolishness in that business uh, and uh, they can make you, it can infuriate you at the time. Uh, but then subsequently uh, I have a story about uh, the development of midnight that I've used sometimes when I do public speaking and it gets a lot of laughs, but at the time it didn't strike me as terribly funny. It was only in retrospect. Uh, and right now I have uh, I went 14 years without an agent because I'd had too many agent problems over the years. And after those 14 years, my attorney said, yeah, the business is changing so much. You have to get agents. And I said, yeah, but I haven't been fortunate about that over the years. And he recommended somebody. And I've been with this attorney for 30 years. And so I said, all right, I'll try it. They turned out great. They brought in the a uh, woman as work with him as the film agent. And she's been excellent at putting me with a certain, a different quality of producer, which might make all the difference in this. And uh, so we've got devoted is in good hands elsewhere in good hands. I heard there's a potential now for a series uh, moving to series on that. I believe it all when it actually begins to film the Jane Hot. The novels were plays. I've seen the pilot script, and it, it's phenomenal. The strange thing was they wanted to move the whole series to Europe, and the pilot script was set in Europe. And subsequently, a lot of people they've taken it to said, we, we like this, but it should be set in the U.S. So now it's being, the script is being mushed around a little to make it the U.S., and Jane is very a uh, quintessential American character. So. But the writer was, did such a brilliant job that it would have worked filming it all over Europe. So that one I'm kind of feeling good about. The nameless stories have, have been placed uh, with a production group for a starring vehicle for Henry Golding, uh, who was the star of uh, Crazy Rich Asians and uh, is widely thought to be the next, one of the next big things. And I really liked him and I think I've seen him performing. Uh, so he could be really cool in that. And uh, so we've got, and then the good guy uh, and uh, Velocity are in the hands of another producer, showrunner, writer, who is excellent. And I think uh, is soon to produce finished script on that. So we'll see. All these things are in the development phase, but I'd be astonished if one or two or three of them doesn't end up actually to production. And then at least one of them has to be something I like. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to hear that. 
Okay, Dean. Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for your time. Pleasure talking with you. The Big Dark Sky comes out on July 19th, and I uh, highly recommend the listeners to go get that. Uh, but thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for taking time to talk to us today. Well, thank, thank you for having me there. Now, go play with the dog. <laughs> thank you for listening to Meet the Thriller Author. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with one of your favorite writers of mysteries and thrillers. Or if this episode's guest is new to you, I hope you give their books a chance. Helping listeners discover new authors and books is one of the coolest outcomes of doing this podcast. As always, you can head over to thrillerauthors.com to sign up to my Thrilling Reads email list. That way you won't miss out on any great deals in thriller and mystery books. You can also check out all the links and resources in the show notes for this episode over at thrillerauthors.com. And also please do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to this show. If you have done that already, I thank you. I really do appreciate your support. For my other links to my author website, social media haunts, and more uh, check out thrillingreads.com forward slash links all my links will be uh, on that uh, page so that's it for this episode Uh, see you next time and stay safe out there